0: Good morning from me, everybody, and it's good to be with you today. We're continuing our journey through the Book of Acts, and uh, the reading that we've just heard forms part of the story that beautifully from last week, where Peter and John were used to bring about the healing of a man who'd been paralysed from birth. And uh, our sermon title today, if you haven't clocked it yet, is "Courageous Church." Uh, So we'll be thinking about that this morning. But it's also Father's Day today. uh, And I know that that will make some of you feel really proud and delighted and excited and loved. And uh, it might make others feel a little bit maybe melancholy or saddened or disappointed or regretful for a whole host of reasons. Because both having a dad, um, as I'm assuming that most of us have, or being a dad can bring with it all kinds of opportunities and challenges and joys and moments of sheer terror and ups and downs and positives and negatives in equal measure and sometimes being a father can bring all of those all at the same time can't it so as I was preparing today I was reminded of the old t-shirt that was around some years ago in the days when wearing a t-shirt with a slogan on was still a cool thing to do so um, if if we can have that t-shirt picture up, and that would be brilliant. There you go. Um, so uh, you don't scare me. I have kids. Um, yeah. So on Father's Day, I thought that was appropriate. And uh, this one, of course, was obviously specifically designed for Matt Bradley and uh, explains why he's such a courageous pastor and church leader. Uh, but there's other things as well other things that that phrases that we use to remind ourselves that sometimes life can be a bit scary How about this one about uh, next slide, please? There you go things that go bump in the night Yeah, those scary things that go bump in the night and as parents together. You know what goes bump in the night, don't you? Click on that one there we go brilliant toddlers toddlers go bump in the night um, as every parent will know, uh, it's usually followed by an ominous silence or an ear-splitting scream. Um, but of course, what makes parenting such a courageous task is the very fact that it's a scary and a challenging thing to do. I mean, let's face it, you're raising kids in a world that wants to eat them and corrupt them and harm their beautiful souls. and Some of you have had kids in the middle of a global pandemic, for goodness sake, and you're battling not just to keep them safe physically, but spiritually and mentally and emotionally too. And you you start off, don't you, as a parent with those joyous moments when your little ones take their first steps and then you suddenly realise that your house is a death trap. And it's filled with poisonous things and objects that can be grabbed and things that can be pulled off shelves and steps that can be climbed up and save them, Lord, is the cry of every parent I've ever known. Or, you know, how about when you rejoice in those first words that they learn to say and your heart melts as they say mommy or daddy for the first time and then... Before you know it, other people are teaching them the words that you never want to hear them say again. And that's before we've even got close to the negotiating puberty and adolescence and peer pressure and boyfriends and girlfriends and career choices and everything else that might go wrong. And of course, if we manage to overcome the fear of what might happen to our kids directly and we manage not to lose them in a supermarket or anything else like that, Um, We've got the challenge of finding the courage we need to become the kind of parents that we really want to be as well and we want our kids to have. I don't think there's a parent alive who's never worried, as Matt said, about whether we're doing a good enough job. Am I doing what's needed? Will they turn out okay? Did I read enough bedtime stories? Did I teach them enough truth? Did I read the Bible with them often enough or did I pray with them every day? Was there Was I there when they needed me? And most of all, do they know how much I love them? Do they really know that I would die in their place every day of the week to keep them safe? And trust me when I say that of all of my life experiences, nothing has required more guts, more determination, more raw courage than raising my four children. And even though my youngest is 16 now and three of them are grown and independent adults, uh, the parental responsibilities, privileges and challenges, of course, are still there. And that's the way it should be, of course. Once you have kids, you're in this for life. And that's maybe the scariest thing of all. Nothing will ever be the same again. And I recall an old lady in the care home. Um she was being interviewed as she celebrated her 100th birthday and um, the interviewer asked her what she was looking forward to most in her 101st year and uh, she said that uh, the thing she was looking forward to most was being able to relax a little bit now because she finally got her youngest child settled into a care home of their own and some of the pressure had come off her. You see the challenges never cease but then of course neither do the joys or the privilege of parenting. But of course again as for your grandparents you know, some of you guys out there are grandparents now. Um, My hat is off to you or it would be if it wasn't an inappropriate thing to show you my balding head on screen. but I'm not even sure I can go there to go. That's a whole new level of scary grandparenting for me. Although one grandparent I know did say to me that actually if they'd realised how much fun the grandkids were, they'd probably have had them first. But I'll pause there because before any of you tell me, big thanks for the sermon on courageous parenting, but I thought the title for today was Courageous Church. Let me just explain why I've just said all that I've said. And it's this, you see. You see, church doesn't become a courageous church by sitting around waiting for some monumental challenge or some great persecution to come, so that it can suddenly rise up and take its stand against the opposition, proving that this sleeping giant was all along really a mighty hero full of faith and ready for the fight, just waiting to be roused. Now, you see, we become a courageous church by each individual member of the community, Learning to live courageously in the ordinary, everyday challenges of our individual lives. So let me say that again. See, becoming a courageous church is about each of us, all part of a community, learning to live courageously in the ordinary, everyday challenges that we face. You see, it happens as we learn to live in the power of Jesus and overcome in the name of Jesus in the ordinary So that when significant challenges come to us corporately, we find that we've developed our confidence in Christ and learned the wisdom of Christ and experienced the power of Christ in such a way that we're ready for whatever new challenge may come our way. So in our passage today, we heard that the religious leaders, hearing the wisdom and seeing the boldness of Peter and John, they took note that they'd been with Jesus. The disciples' experience of Jesus during his earthly ministry and even though they would misunderstood most of what it said and were totally unprepared for his death, it had somehow built into them, grown something in them, and now, energised by the presence of the Spirit at work in them, the faith and the confidence that had deserted them at Jesus' arrest, now rose up to meet the challenge to the truth of his resurrection. You see, bravery, a brave act, can appear in a moment when it's needed. But true courage takes time to develop. And let me explain that and what I think the difference is. So lots of you will know that faced with a threat or a challenge, humans and animals are hardwired with what biology refers to as a fight or flight response. We're attacked in some way, whether that's physically, emotionally, psychologically, and we either fight back or we run away. It's not often a response that has a reasoned element to it. We don't usually have time to decide whether we're going to run away or stand our ground. We simply react. But as humans, we've got the capacity to reflect on our reactions. We have the benefit of being able to consider our responses and decide whether we could have or should have done something differently. We can revisit in our minds and determine whether next time we want to react differently and this can help us build courage. And courage isn't always doing what seemed to be the brave thing. Courage is choosing to do the right thing in each circumstance. It's kind of similar to wisdom in that respect. So sometimes courage can be choosing to walk away from a conflict in order to address it at another time or because that walking away actually serves a greater kingdom purpose. Courage can be prepared, being prepared to look weak in the eyes of others because you know as a Christian that spotting winners and losers in the kingdom of heaven often requires us having a different perspective than the world does. Let me give you an example, because the Son of God himself, who could have called down 12 legions of angels, told his disciple to put away his sword, and then he healed an injured man and then submitted to earthly authorities for the sake of our greater good. And that, of course, is the difference, that true courage is not about responding or reacting with an individual act of bravery. True courage is about learning through reflection to live bravely through a series of challenges and then when facing a greater challenge that we know may require maybe the greatest sacrifice choosing to respond bravely even you, though you know what it may cost you. So in our passage today we heard Peter and John hauled up before the Sanhedrin and called to give an account of their actions and their words. Peter's brave response, which is, of course, his learned behavior following on from an earlier flight response when he denied even knowing Jesus. He impresses the bigwigs so much that they're actually amazed by him. But when, despite their amazement, the Sanhedrin go on to threaten them never to speak to anyone ever again in the name of Jesus, he and John show true courage because they've just got away with it this time they got away without punishment for their actions because, of course, as we heard, how do you punish people when the result of that action is the fact that everyone's rejoicing and praising God? But the disciples then take that threat before the Lord himself. They know it's the real threat. they got away with it this time, but next time they'll be imprisoned or maybe even worse. They know that if they keep preaching and performing miracles in Jesus' name, there's going to be consequences. But even before those consequences become a present reality, they face them and ask not that they're taken away and not that God will deal with their oppressors, but that God will give them the boldness they need to keep doing the right thing despite the punishment that they're going to face. So let's take a few minutes and think about what the disciples asked for here. And almost more importantly, what they don't ask for, because I think it's part of a courageous response too. the fight response would have us defending our own corner, seeking to beat down the opposition. You'll recall that James and John once famously asked for permission to call down fire from heaven on Jesus' opponents. What a great thing to do being a follower of Jesus, Lord, shall we just call down fire from heaven and burn them all up? The disciples don't here don't ask God for anything like that. They don't ask that God will punish their oppressors. They don't even ask that God will take that oppression away and they don't ask God for the strength to come against their oppressors themselves, not at all. They're focused on the task and the calling that they've been given. They ask for what they need to stand strong under oppression. It said, God, you've heard their words. Now give us the courage, please, to finish the job. Of course, that's part of loving our enemies, as Jesus commanded us to do, that when we face a battle, really, we realise, as the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we don't seek to annihilate the opposition. We just ask that after we've done everything, we might still stand firm, Ephesians six fourteen. We don't fight like the world fights. We don't fight people. We're people of truth and righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. We're people of God's word and God's spirit. And we don't need to overcome the world with our wit and our wisdom or our cleverness or our own power. Jesus has done that. In this world, you will have trouble. You'll have those people that come at you one way or another. But take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three, My favourite verse, I think. Let's give him the room to consider the threats that we face and leave it to him to avenge anything that needs avenging. And let's be people who get on with the job that we've been given. But let's take a minute or two to think about the kind of threats threats that we face as the people of God and the things we can learn from the threats that Peter and John face. So just considering what we've heard in this morning's passage again, let's remind ourselves of what led to the opposition against them. So you recall from last week's reading that Peter and John don't, don't go out that morning with any great agenda. Neil pointed out last week that they're still in the habit of just doing what they're used to doing. And they're off to the temple to pray like the law says every good Jewish boy should do three times a day. And while they're going up to the temple steps, this occurrence happens when a beggar asks them for some loose change. It's an everyday occurrence, sadly a bit like Taunton on the average weekday. But there's a moment for them here that's different. And I don't know how they discern it exactly, but there's a prompting of the Spirit or a word from the Lord that makes P&J stop in their tracks and focus on this guy, looking at him intently. And this is the kind of thing I was talking about at the start, where the opportunity presents itself, the opportunity for the miraculous presents itself, not in the prayer meeting, but in the moment on the way to the prayer meeting in the middle of the ordinary business of getting yourself through life it isn't always the direct threats that give an opportunity for moments of bravery sometimes it's just a chance to step out and do the right thing and that's what Peter and John do here they take a risk they stop the guy just clamoring for cash and give him what he really needs and of course God does this great miracle So, with that in mind, let's just think about some of the lessons that we can learn from this passage today. So, Leilani, if I can have the PowerPoint bit up again from lesson one from this passage. Yeah. So, the first lesson I like us to think about is that the opportunities for bravery will almost certainly present themselves when you're in the middle of doing something completely different, something else. God in case you haven't noticed, often as inconvenient timing from our human perspective. But we can learn to be people who are ready to seize those moments when God engineers them. Have you ever had one of those moments when God said something or you felt a prompting about something, but you weren't quick enough to respond? I know that I've had many like that. But then afterwards you realise that you just missed the chance to do good to somebody. And what I'd encourage you with is not to beat yourself up about it but to learn from those moments and like I said to reflect on it. What could have been different? Can we pray and ask God to make us quicker off the mark next time? The great thing is of course He's a good, good father. He's a God who never runs out of second chances for his children. And he'll certainly keep giving them to us if we're willing to be used. So lesson one, it's often an awkward moment that presents itself in the ordinariness of life. Let's be ready to respond to what God's doing in that moment. And lesson two would be this that he can't develop bravery without taking risks. Many of you will know of John Wimber who founded the Vineyard Movement. He and his peers were challenged by the Lord to start living like they saw the Church in Acts doing and to pray for miracles and healings and the the great story is that when they first started praying for people to be healed they saw more people get worse after they prayed than they did get better But that didn't stop them they took a risk and they carried on and then after a while once the church was established, they were challenged by a bunch of people who were cessationists who believed that the gifts of the Spirit had died out with the apostles and who said that if this was God who was doing it, why wasn't everyone that was prayed for healed? Why wasn't God healing everybody like Jesus did? But John Wimber famously responded that, you know, when we took no risks and we prayed for nobody, we could guarantee that no one got healed. Now we step out and pray for everybody and actually some are healed. Better the only some are, that there's no chance that anyone will be. And as Neil said again last week, healing can be a complicated thing to get to grips with theologically. And our experience is that not all are healed. But here's a thought. What if Peter and John had stepped out in public and the guy's feet and legs had not become strong? I guess none of us would ever have got to hear about that story, would we? But the reality is that they stepped out and God stepped in. And we have this narrative because they took a risk. and And this memory, this history that's recorded here, It exists because the disciples took a risk. They stepped out, God stepped in. And if we want to see God step into our church life, we need to be those that step out into what he's called us to. Because no miracles are ever going to happen because of man. Why do you stare at us if, if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk, Peter said? So, although there's stuff that we can learn, ultimately it's God who holds the outcome. So let's not be those who let fear of man or fear of failure prevent us stepping out. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a church culture that says it's better to try and fail and to learn from that than that we're part of a people that just never take risks. Third lesson. Let's think about this one for a minute. That actually becoming a courageous church will always lead to opposition. Many of you are familiar with Nicky Gumbel, who started the Alpha movement out of HDB in London, and he says that he's personally received far more criticism following the international success of Alpha course than he ever did before he began it. Even though the fruit of what he initiated is plain to see, and so many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have encountered God from themselves through it, still he's had more opposition a more challenge, more criticism through its success than he ever did before he started it. The interesting thing in our passage, I think, is that Peter and John who healed the man, that the man's delighted. He's jumping and shouting and praising God. He's thankful and joyful and exuberant in his gratitude and the crowd that witnessed this, Uh, saw the miracle for themselves they're delighted too and they come running and shouting and praising God and in and around the temple there was much thankfulness and celebration and rejoicing in God's goodness and yet here are Peter and John hauled in front of the religious police the court of the day in order to explain themselves I mean How dare they perform a miracle? How dare they show such kindness to a paralysed man whose life so far has been defined by what he couldn't do? How dare they use the name of Jesus with such power and authority? And how dare they have the courage and wisdom to answer the council back with such conviction? These are just unschooled, uneducated fishermen after all. How dare they? But, you know, the outrage of people towards God goodness has never made any sense or required any logical basis. We get this astounding account of ingrained religiosity that even amongst the very people who are supposed to know God best, we see them desperately trying to shut God down. I find it interesting, you know, if you read church history, it teaches us that in every new move of the Spirit of God, every time God does something fresh by his spirit among his people. The strongest opposition usually comes from those that were part of the last great move of the spirit. And it's true, people generally don't like change. People generally don't like it when God does something that forces them to change their thinking. And religious people especially generally hate anything that threatens their carefully thought through theology. So we get this crazy insight here into the screwed up thinking of the Sanhedrin refusing to see what God is doing right in front of them. Because they're so desperately intent on protecting the religious order that supposedly exists only for God's name's sake that they're actually missing the very thing that's being done in God's name. Which leads me on to... Lesson four, which is my final one for this one, that developing courage requires us being brave with our own inner convictions. I think the Sanhedrin weren't. But what about Peter? Peter's been a man of fight or flight his whole life, if you like. Um, He's there telling Jesus to get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner, while desperately clutching on to his ankles in the bottom of a boat on the lake after the first miraculous catch of fish. Then he's the, tell me to come to you and save me, I'm drowning, as he walks on the water with his master on the lake. And he's the, no, no, Lord, no, Lord, two words that never work together. Two words that never work together. No, Lord, this shall never happen when Jesus is talking about his impending death. He's the fighter with the sword in Gethsemane, but then he's the curse me. I never knew the man when he stood by the courtyard fire. But Peter proves that we can learn not just to react, but to respond with courage. And by now he's becoming a man who can explain the reality of God and the goodness of what's happening with the boldness that comes from a life lived experience in Jesus. So he doesn't lash out or accuse his antagonists, but he does take his stand and make his case with clarity and conviction. And yet it's interesting, in just a little while, Peter himself will have a similar challenge to his own understanding and have to learn a similar lesson to the Sanhedrin himself. As God blows his theology out of the water by independently giving the Holy Spirit to Cornelius' household in Acts 10, which we'll get to in a little while in this series, I'm sure. Thankfully, of course, on that occasion, Peter has the courage to let his understanding flex. And despite what other Jews might think of him for doing it, he embraces the new thing that God is doing and baptizes this Gentile household. So let's be grateful that he did, because a retreat into the security of Judaism at the time might have led to all kinds of consequence for us Gentiles in the future. And it's true for us in our own bit of church, as it was for Peter in his own time, if we're going to be a courageous church as we move forward together, we're not only going to have to be brave with individual situations that we face, but we're going to have to be prepared to have our theology renewed and our understanding refreshed and refined as we explore what God wants to do among us in this next season. There's going to be new ways of thinking and new ways of doing and new ways of being to be explored and some of that may be scary for some of us. It may be that there are a great many things that will require change and that can be unsettling. There may be threats to those things that we feel are theologically robust but turn out not to be so permanent as we thought they were. We may have to rethink how we look at church and the world and the distinctions between the two. And when we gathered online, are we still gathered as church as it's forced us to think about in this season? There may be those inner convictions that we hold that are challenged by a new thing that God does and we'll find that we're faced with a choice. Will we stay rigid and resistant like the Sanhedrin did? Or will we find a way to flex and embrace God's work among us? Can we have a theology which is strong, but is springy at the same time? That supports the truth of who God is amongst us, but allows us to jump higher towards him and the things he's doing. So let me, just in conclusion, say something to us as Creech Baptist Church here. And it's this, I think, that becoming a courageous church is not about meeting a single big challenge head on and defeating it, not even the big challenge of an unprecedented global pandemic. It's about learning together from our fight or flight moments and becoming collectively stronger as we go. It's about learning that the challenges one of us finds easy can feel overwhelming to another of us, and it's about appreciating the corporate wisdom that can be garnered from learning that what some of us run from, others can run towards, and that has what has one of us urging caution brings out the gladiator in another, and it's also about learning that sometimes the courageous thing to do is step forward and sometimes the courageous thing to do is hold back it's not always brave to pick up a sword sometimes it's brave to heal a hurt in an act of reconciliation and humbly submit to god's will for the greater good a courageous church isn't one in which everyone responds the way i would being part of a courageous church means realizing that although I am the church, I'm not the whole church. I'm part of a body that Christ is building, and within that wider body is more than my lifetime's experience of a learned fight or flight response. There's a whole church full of learned fight or flight responses that build our collective wisdom together help us to make the right decision, to know when to press forward and know when to step back. It's about me taking my place in that body and realising that sometimes I'm being called to step forward as the whole body moves and sometimes I'm being called to hold back as the whole body waits for God's timing. Always reminding myself That as the body together, it's together that we discern the mind of Christ as our head. And as the body together, we listen for his wisdom and his words, his stop, his go, his now, his not yet. Because although we are the body, of course, we all have only one head. Jesus always was the most courageous He always was the greatest hero. We can trust him with his now and his not yet. And we can learn to keep in step together. Let's pray for a minute as we close. Lord, thank you that you showed us what true courage is. And sometimes true courage is being prepared to look weak in the eyes of the world. Lord, sometimes courage is about the greater good, not just what I need in this moment. Lord, you call each of us into all kinds of situations that force a reaction from us. Lord, help us to learn from them. Thank you that we have one another and we can learn from one another as well. And Lord, thank you that I don't have to decide what it is that Jesus is calling Creech Baptist to. Lord, I discern that with my brothers and my sisters together. Because Lord, you've given us one spirit and you've called us to be part of one body because we have one Lord. So Lord, help us to rely on your courage and know that as we follow you, you will share that with us.